what are we going to learn here in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel as we go, as we transition from the period of the judges into the period of the kings with a character like Eli, who we were introduced to, in that transition, are we going to find that then the kings actually solve the problem, that if Israel just has an earthly king, everything will finally be all right? Well, of course not. For the kings, it goes poorly. For Saul, it goes poorly. For David, it goes poorly, albeit in a very different way. For Solomon, too, it goes poorly. And then you have the divided kingdom, and that's a disaster. And so what you find, too, is that the kings don't really solve the problem. So we have to have, we need, we need a true judge and a true king. And of course, then we recognize the fulfillment of these offices in the person of Jesus Christ. Revelation explicitly calls him the capital J judge and the capital K king. So the New Testament bears witness that Jesus is the true judge and the true king. Now, in between those two poles that we've just brought up, judge and king, we could also fill in a couple other positions, for example, prophet and priest. In the person of Levi, we see the, that the priesthood has uh, failed and that, that we are wanting... I'm sorry, I'm really distracted. I'm hearing... Uh, David, I don't know if you can help me out. I'm hearing an echo. It's right after everything I... There it goes. Nope, still there. <laughs> when I really get going, it's like I'm a word behind it. Anyway, well, I'll do the best I can. So... What you find is that the priesthood fails, and no, uh, no surprise there. The priesthood is made of sinners, and so Eli and his sons represent uh, the, the depths to which the priesthood has fallen and failed, and so we need a priest. And of course, that priest is going to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus, not after the order of the Levites, but after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews in the New Testament is the book that shows us how Christ is the true priest. What we also see, not so much by negative, where, where the judges are negative, they, they show us all that's lacking, the kings show us what's lacking, the priests show us what's lacking. We have a positive example in the character of Samuel where Samuel shows us what a faithful prophet is. And so Samuel points positively, not negatively like the others, but positively in the way that he shows forth who Christ will be as prophet. So it probably familiar to you if you're anywhere Protestant, this idea of prophet, priest, and king, and who knows, it's maybe gone so far as to just be universal within the church, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic office, the priestly office, and the kingly office. He is the true prophet, priest, and king. And then all I'm doing is simply adding the judges to that, because that is, that is the case as well. So as we, look at, as we look at what these texts are doing, they're driving us and show, to Christ and showing forth Christ by way of negative and positive example, who he is, what he will be, um, at, you know, looking forward to his coming. And then for us, present tense, who he is unto all eternity. He changes not. So true judge, true prophet, true priest, true king. That's what we're seeing here in these texts to, to zoom out and get the big picture. All right, well, that probably suffices to hit the major themes. So last week, we jumped right into chapter 1, and of course, we're introduced to Elkanah, 
And uh, Elkanah has two wives, uh, Hannah, who is barren, and Peninnah, who has children. And of course, this is archetypal in the Old Testament through Genesis. Um, moving all the way forward, we've seen this again and again, the woman with children and the woman who is barren. And uh, God gives you know, the miracle child, uh, and, and all of this, of course, foreshadows and shows forth um, the miracle birth of Jesus uh, through the virgin, not one who is, who is barren, but one who is virgin. And so Christ um, you know, comes in this, in this specific way through this miracle. And so we see that motif. All right, um, but again, just back to the text, Elkanah has, is married to Hannah and married to Peninnah. Um, Elkanah, or, or excuse me, Hannah uh, wants children, can't have children, um, weeps, prays. In the course of this narrative, we're introduced to Eli and then also uh, his sons, uh, Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas, we learn, are bad guys. And Eli is a complex character, in some ways sympathetic, in some ways not. The bottom line is he loves his sons more than he loves the Lord. And uh, there's a lesson to let sink in there if you're a parent. Uh, it's a big lesson, a painful lesson, but in the end it's, it's less painful than the alternative uh, because the alternative is to, is to value your children above the Lord. And this can, of course, lead you to great pain and agony in, in this kind of idolatry that's very subtle and one we don't recognize today. Um, can cause all kinds of problems when we value our children greater than we value the Lord. We fear offending our children more than we fear offending the Lord. And so that's the, the complex character of Eli and, and worthwhile to meditate on, you know. Um, our children are gifts of the Lord. They are not our lords, and uh, they're given to us for a time that we might serve them, but the Lord gives, and sometimes the Lord takes away, and we still must say, blessed be the name of the Lord, and so uh, to recognize, you know, our children within the proper order, um, that's probably the take-home for us, the universal takeaway from a character like Eli, who otherwise in many respects is a tragic character, complex to be sure, but tragic. Okay, so what do we find? We find that Hannah is praying in the temple. Of course, she is praying um, with her, you know, silently with her heart drawn near to the Lord and her lips moving quietly. And this was so unusual that Eli simply assumes that she has uh, had too much to drink. And Hannah then models, I mean, is just the epitome of uh, piety and humility and even when Eli, who you know, himself is a little crooked, and then he assumes the worst about her and accuses her, uh, she responds to him in just wonderful humility and piety, and so much so that she, you know, her conduct and her kind and soft words uh, change him to where he ends up blessing her, saying, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition. Her petition, of course, is that the Lord would open her womb, and the vow she takes is that if the Lord will open her womb, her very first son, uh, she will dedicate her gift back to the Lord. Of course, that son is Samuel. That's what we find in chapter uh, 1, verse, looks like 20. Um, she, is, uh, she bears a son, and his name is called Samuel. And uh, 
Then we read um, through 21, uh, verses 21 through 28 last week. So again, just to sum those up, um, as soon as the child is weaned, that's at an older age than is normal for us, but that's just the way it was then, probably two or three years old, probably three. I don't know if the text says, I don't recall. Anyway, then she takes him up. Um, and part of her vow is that he's going to be a Nazarite. And so you have Samuel as one of the, the, the few Nazarites in Scripture. I think if memory serves, you have Samson as a Nazarite, Samuel's a Nazarite, John the Baptist, I want to say, is a Nazarite. And then Paul takes a Nazarite vow, which is temporary in nature, along with some others. So you could always do the temporary thing. But I think those are the three, if I'm not mistaken. If someone is online and wants to Google it, wants to correct me, and that's great. Uh, so what do we see here then? Um, she says, basically, you know, I've, I've given him to the Lord. We can, we can look at um, verse 26. Why not? And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. So here she's, Hannah speaking to Eli. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. And of course, this lending language is, uh, maybe strikes our ears as strange. It shouldn't. It's just, you know, I'm giving him back to the Lord. He's my child, but I'm giving him back to the Lord. The Lord's given to me, so I'm giving. And that lending isn't uh, temporary. That lending is, as is clear in the next line, as long as he lives. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Uh, and he worshiped the Lord there. Um, that being descriptive of Samuel. Okay, so then we enter Hannah's prayer. And again, if we're, if we're tracing with this, we're seeing that Samuel in many ways already represents and points to Christ. He's a type and foreshadowing of Christ by his miracle birth, by his priestly office, by his faithfulness to the Lord. And so as we continue to see that, and as we see Samuel as the... As the um, the type of Jesus, then we increasingly see Hannah as a type of Mary. And in fact, Mary's song, you know, in Luke, might, um, it might even be directly inspired by Hannah's prayer. It may well be that Mary had learned and for all intents and purposes memorized at some point Hannah's prayer. And thus you find the similarity between what we know as the Magnificat, Mary's song, and Hannah's uh, prayer recorded here in 1 Samuel 2. However you shake out the, the hows and whys, the simple fact is that these two texts are remarkably similar in terms of their theme. And that theme is shorthand sometimes called the Great Reversal. So let's take a look at this. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. Now, you remember before when she was in the temple, it was quite, it was quite humble. She was, this is verse 10 of chapter 1, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So from weeping bitterly to exaltation, exalting in the Lord. That's the reversal that has taken place, okay? My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
You know, previously it was the mouths of the enemies that were deriding her. Now she is able to deride her enemies. Um, again, because of the Lord's salvation, very specifically his, his giving to her a child, but even more broadly, the fact that he gives to her this child and answers her prayer is then the fact that he loves her and cares for her and indeed will save her. And so these two things, we need not draw a hard and fast line between them. It's one and the same. You know, the fact that God is merciful and good toward her as sinner um, bespeaks the fact that she is saved and she belongs to him. So this business about, remember with Peninnah, it was Peninnah who was deriding mocking and making fun of Hannah. And so, so look at how this has been reversed. Now she may deride her enemies instead of her enemies deriding her. So it's a reversal of fortune. And that's really the theme of, of this entire prayer. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And here, Rock, you can think of foundation, you can think of fortress, that kind of thing. Um, again, the Lord, the Lord is holy, the Lord is, um, th there is no, no one on his par or on his level. He is a rock and a rock unto uh, his people who trust in him. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. I, the force of this, and I don't mean to pry this into the theme, but the force of this is uh, when we are proud, when we are full of ourselves, then we can't receive any knowledge from the Lord. So talk more, no more very proudly would be like empty yourself, Humble yourself, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In other words, in your humility, he will raise you up. In your pride, he will smash you down. And that's, of course, you can recognize those themes in the Magnificat. He has uh, scattered the proud with the strength of his arm. So um, this idea of the proud and mighty being cast down, and the lowly and humble being lifted up. So then, don't be proud, and don't open your mouth with great swelling things, but be humble, and the Lord will exalt you and grant you His knowledge. That's the prayer here that Hannah is praying. It's filled with, with wonderful wisdom. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And so here, too, you see the reversal, you know, the, the, excuse me, the bows, that is. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. So the strong are made weak, or the strong are broken, and the feeble or weak are made strong. Um, you can think of, if you think of 1 Corinthians and that kind of logic, the, those foolish enough to believe the Lord, those foolish enough to believe the foolishness of the cross, we are the ones who are truly wise, while the ones who are wise in the world are truly fools um, because they reject the Christ. They reject the wisdom of God. 
the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. You, you, so you have that kind of motif where, I mean, that's obviously in the paradigm of wisdom and foolishness, and um, here not, not so different with God being the God of knowledge, but you have, the same, you have a similar parallel with the mighty being broken and the feeble finding strength. So, reversal theme. Um, yeah, let's go a little further. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. So, again, you see the reversal, don't you? It's, uh, you know, the full have to now work. They're hungry. They're so hungry, they'll hire themselves out for bread. And those who are hungry, uh, they're full. The barren has born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Again, maybe quite a bit autobiographical here. Uh, the barren has born seven. She's, she's hopeful in, in an autobiographical sense that um, Samuel is the first of many. And in fact, uh, I think that, that is going, we're going to see that that is the case. Um, and then she who has born many children, autobiographically, that would be Penina, is forlorn, you know. She was kind of an empty, an empty person anyway, making fun of poor barren uh, Hannah. And now that Hannah has children, Peninnah can't boast in her children, so she's forlorn. So a nice little reversal there. And of course, you know, um, Paul takes this up in a way in, in the type uh, of the of the barren and the one who has children, because this is not, not this specific instance, but it's, this is just a theme and a motif that runs throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And so, you know, we, we see that um, the fruitfulness of those who are faithful. It's as, if, it's as if you have the, for them you have the faith first and then the reward. And the others who don't have the faith but have the reward, even that reward is taken away. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, so the barren has born seven. You know, she had faith. She had no fruit. She was barren. Now she's fruitful. The one who has many children, who has fruit but has no faith, is forlorn. So it's a, it's a reversal in the broader sense, too. Hmm. It's, very, it's a very rich text. We could go on on that one for quite some time, but I better just move on because there are other themes that come to mind there. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And here's one of the, one of the more famous lines. This uh, line gets brought up by Luther and becomes a famous line within the Lutheran tradition. The Lord kills and brings to life. So you can see the reversal. He takes the living, makes them dead, takes the dead, makes them living. Um, there's the reversal theme. And of course, this is exactly what happens to us concretely. I mean, it's the Lord who imposes death upon us. And yet, it is the Lord who says to us, though you die, yet shall you live. And so we have that final, ultimate death and resurrection, the Lord killing us and the Lord making us alive. But the more you consider and ponder that, uh, the more you start to see all kinds of little deaths and little resurrections all throughout your life. Um, 
in fact, such that even when God preaches his law and then his gospel, there's, in a sense, a death and resurrection that takes place, spiritual death and resurrection. It's being put to death by his law, being put to death by the reality that we are not holy, that the wages of our sins have merited death, and yet then being brought back to life, that by the free grace and mercy given to us in Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven. They've been atoned for by his death on the cross. And so we are um, brought to life in Christ, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, as the New Testament teaches. Put to death by the law, raised by the gospel, um, that type of motif, that type of thing going on. It's a reversal, and of course it bespeaks the essence of, of our salvation. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Sheol is one of those tricky words. It can mean, in the, in the Old Testament text, it can mean hell. It can also mean just death, sort of nebulously. Those, those two ideas that are so clear and so distinct in our mind, death and hell, um, sort of semantically overlap. And uh, shale can mean either. The long and the short is it's a parallel to the preceding. So the Lord kills and brings to life is precisely parallel to he brings down to shale and raises up. It's, it's nothing more. It's not saying it. It's not trying to say anything other than that. All right, um, verse 7, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And again, the way of the cross, the way of following Jesus, you know, whoever would follow me, Jesus says, let him take up his cross. That's an instrument of, of death, and that bespeaks an entire way of, of following Jesus. And so we follow Jesus and so um, become poor, and in due time in Christ Jesus, God will make us rich. And we follow Jesus, and thus we are following the lowly one, the humble one, the meek one, you know, who is meek and lowly of heart. And then just as Christ is exalted, so we in due time will be exalted. So why don't you, why don't you open with me to um, Philippians 2. We'll take, we'll take a couple quick field trips here, and I'll just show you this because it's worth pondering. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, Philippians 2. Very famous section of scripture came up in our lectionary just recently. Why not get the whole context? Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the key. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay. In other words, what Paul's going to go on and say is, this is the mind of Christ, and because you are a Christian, this mind has been given to you, so embrace it, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Here's the material. Who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. A really interesting reading of this text is to put this text in, in contrast with Adam. You know, Christ is called uh, the new Adam, the second Adam. The first Adam did count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You remember the nature of the, of the temptation, and again, it's, it's specific to Eve, but it doesn't matter for the sake of this argument here. But uh, your eyes shall be opened, the serpent says, and you shall know good from evil. You shall be like God. And so both Eve and Adam, in, to whatever extent and in whatever degree, both thought that equality with God was a thing to be grasped. And so in reaching up, I mean, here's the reversal, right? In reaching up to be like God, they fell down into sin and godlessness. Christ, as the second Adam, is quite different. He does not, even though he's in the form of God, I mean, that is, even though he is God and is God's son, he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or reached. In his humanity, he does not say what Adam and Eve say, you know, I must know everything, I must be as God, I must take. But rather, um, he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's the contrast, and it's, it's twofold. Verse 7, but made himself nothing, descriptive of Christ, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. You know, God becomes man and becomes man in such a way that he becomes a man subject to the law and subject to the curse. So he makes himself nothing and takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So there's the, there's the first point. And then verse 8 is the second point. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to whom? Obedient to God. To the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, most painful, shameful death, you know, publicly humiliating, excruciating death that you can imagine. And even deeper, you know, to, to be hung from a tree in terms of what the Old Testament says is to be cursed by God and cut off from God. And so that's also the shame that he bears. And he bears willingly because he's willing to humble himself in obedience even unto this. So you have this twofold thing. Again, um, back at verse 7, but made himself nothing, okay, becoming a man. And then verse 8, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nothing and humbled himself. Then look at verse 9. Here's the reversal. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So there's the contrast. Jesus humbles himself. Um, he, he makes himself nothing. And therefore, God exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, a crucified criminal uh, becomes then exalted to the point that every name um, you know, in heaven and on earth confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right. What then does Paul say about this? Not just like, well, it's good that you know that. But again, going back to verse 5, what's his whole point and purpose? Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind of 
uh, emptying ourselves and becoming nothing, the mind of humbling ourselves and being obedient to God no matter what the cost, no matter what the injustice, no matter how much it looks like God repays our obedience with punishment, this is the way of Christ. This is the way of his passion, of the cross. And so Jesus says, you know, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And here you can see exactly what he's talking about then. The entire Christian life is in the shape of following Jesus in humility that we might follow him in exaltation. Now, the opposite of that is precisely the way of the devil in the world, which is, hey, exalt yourself now. Christ says, humble yourself now. The world says, exalt yourself now. Now is all you have. Seize the day. Oh. And the irony then is that everyone who exalts themselves now will be humbled. But everyone who humbles themselves now in Christ Jesus will be exalted. So you can think of all the famous people of the world, and usually this is how it works, isn't it? They're almost always godless, self-exalting, and exalted by men. All the people of this world that are known and well-known are utterly forgotten in the age that is to come. While those of us who are completely unknown and nothing and of no account are remembered by God for all eternity. And so look, that's it. That's the equation. I mean, you're in one camp or the other. You're either exalted now, soon to be humbled, or you're humbled now and soon to be exalted. And if you're humbled now and under the affliction of God, don't despair. Quite the opposite. Recognize that your salvation has come. Recognize that you're following exactly in the footsteps of your Lord Jesus. You know, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So, so then this, this really ought to, uh, well, it reveals to us what Hannah's prayer is ultimately pointing to. It's ultimately pointing to the reality that we experience in Christ Jesus. You know, going back to going back to First Samuel chapter two and verse six, you can now you can see it in a, in a different light. The Lord kills and brings to life. You know, the Lord Good Fridays and Easter's, and we need to realize that this life isn't Easter, so don't expect it to be. This life is Good Friday. Easter is coming. This life is Good Friday, so embrace Good Friday just as Jesus did, and know that God will in due time exalt. God will in due time. Uh, raise. The, one of the biggest problems for us as Christians is we think that it's Easter now, and it's not. I mean, Easter is to come. Now is shaped by the cross. So the Lord kills and brings to life. Um, it's not, and it's not to say that there aren't exceptions to that. There aren't breakthroughs. I mean, there isn't a, I mean of course, there's a spiritual resurrection. I'm just in, in broad brush strokes, that's how we ought to think. That's the mind that we ought to have in ourselves, as St. Paul says. Okay, and then the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. You can see how that's exactly the Lord Jesus, the pattern of the Lord Jesus. It's exactly the pattern of Hannah. It's exactly the pattern of us. It's exactly the pattern of all his saints. This is how it goes. Okay, he raises up the poor from the dust. You know, and that's reminiscent of uh, um, from dust you came to dust you shall return. And so he raises up the poor from the dust. Jesus' Beatitudes begin, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the 
ash heap. You know, the ash heap's the place of mourning, the place of contrition, the place of repentance. So when we plunge, plunge ourselves into the ash heap of repentance, God wants to exalt us with his, not only his absolution, but his gifts and his spirit. So he lifts the needy from the ash heap. And of course, all these little things we go through in our lives, these, like I said, these small deaths and these small resurrections prepare us for the big one that we're all approaching. We don't know when, but the big one is to entrust ourselves to God then when life is at an end, trusting that he will raise us, trusting that even though we are going into the dust, he will bring us forth once more. And so a million times over, sometimes a million times in one day, it feels like God takes us through this pattern also that throughout our lives and at the end of our lives, we may trust in him. All right, so uh, I cut off there halfway through verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. You know, and that's, that's a glimpse of heaven. We sit with the, with the princes, with the sons of the great king, and we inherit a seat of honor, you know, because Christ eats with sinners. And so we receive a seat of honor. You know, and you can, it's reminiscent of that teaching of Jesus, too. Gosh, so many of Jesus' teachings, now that I think about it, just come right out of this prayer. Remember the, remember the teaching where he says, don't take the place of honor, lest the host come and put you down in a lower seat, and you'd be embarrassed. Um, rather take the lower place, and the host will come and exalt and say, friend, come sit up here. You know, it's, that, it's the same motif, isn't it? It's the same idea of humble yourself and God will exalt you. Exalt yourself and God will humble you. Uh, and not just because, I mean, not just because this is justice or not just because this is how God works, but ultimately because that's what's good for you. you know, that's, that's what's good for you. If, if, you're, if you're full of yourself, you need to, you need to be humbled. Um, if you're truly humbled, you need to be raised up. And that's ultimately God's goal. That's why he kills and brings to life. That's why he humbles and then exalts, because this is exactly what we need. All right, um, last, last little stanza or a few lines from verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Um, again, just the Lord, I think the sense of this is the Lord's in control of any, everything. He can do whatever he wants. He's established the earth. He's established the world. He can do all these things. In fact, he does all these things. No one can stop him. I think that's the sentiment there. Maybe you have a better idea. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Again, so the, the wicked are the ones who appear to be strong and self-sufficient and independent and free and all of this stuff. They're cut off in darkness. But the faithful ones, you know, the ones that bind themselves to God in humility and bear the afflictions, etc., um, he guards our feet. And so, um, you know, we, we end up walking the path that leads to eternal life. The wicked don't make it to eternal life. They're cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. You know, not by human strength. Of course, when we think as Lutherans, as we think in churchly terms and in terms of the Reformation, it's like you couldn't have a, a more helpful Old Testament verse 
Like, you don't get to heaven because you merit or earn your way there. <laughs> Not by might shall a man prevail. And where is that more true than how one gets into heaven? But it's true for all of life. And the faithful recognize that, you know, when we are weak, he is strong. And that we of ourselves are nothing. As Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in me, you will bear much fruit. So that's one of the secrets, right? And it's one of the ironies, kind of I've maybe one of the paradoxes, if you will, where the faithful ones are totally weak and yet in God we're totally strong. The ones who are totally strong, or at least appear to be, are in fact totally weak, incompetent to do anything, even save themselves. For not by might shall a man prevail. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So again, those who, are, those who are faithful to the Lord and servants of the Lord um, shall be exalted. Those who exalt themselves against the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Um, you see this in the Psalms, the very first Psalm, for example. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see this in um, Revelation and Spades. So if you've got a Lord who can't broke anyone, break anyone into pieces, um, then you don't really have the Lord of the Scriptures. If your Jesus is so nice he would never crush his adversaries, then your Jesus is different than the Jesus you find in the Scriptures. It's worth keeping in mind. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And see, now, now you have it explicitly. The Lord will judge. So in other words, where all the other judges failed, he will not. The Lord will judge, and not only over Israel, but over the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, ah, and exalt the power of his anointed. You see how this prayer ends? This prayer ends with such power, with such crescendo. Not only that the Lord will triumph over his enemies, but that the Lord will judge, which solves one of the great questions of judges. It's like, we need a judge. And that judge is going to be the Lord. And then look at this next line. He will give strength to his king. The Lord will give strength to his king. Here, who is his king? Well, Jesus is his king. So already here at the beginning of Samuel, <laughs> in a rather ironic sense, all this business about earthly kings, all this business about Saul and David, Solomon, and the ones that follow, that's not the answer. The answer is already found here that the Lord is king and that the Lord will give his son to be our king. So we have the Lord as judge, we have the Lord as king, and then, this is a great line, and exalt the power of his anointed. Now, if you have a Lutheran study Bible and you go down and dig in this, in this, uh, in this verse, you're going to see this is the first reference in the Old Testament to, quote-unquote, the anointed. So, what's the anointed? The Messiah. The Messiah. So the first time you get this, this language of Messiah is right here in uh, Hannah's prayer. And it's, it's so fantastic. Of course, Messiah comes to be synonymous with king because the kings are anointed. Thus, the kings are anointed ones. So, um, you know, the, the Messiah is the anointed one. It's actually what Christ means, is Christ means the anointed one. Um, But this is, a, this is a beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful thing, too, when you consider the theology of, um, of woman in the Scriptures. 
because you have, uh, you know, there's an, there's an ordering of the fall, and I don't have time to go into all of that, but you, just look up the verse where it says, you know, that Adam was not deceived and that Eve was deceived. There's an ordering, there's an ordering to the fall, and there's an ordering to the reversal of the fall such that, um, you know, man, for example, man, mankind falls by the hand of woman, so by the hand of woman, mankind will be restored. And, and that, you know, the one woman through whom we fell is Eve, and the one woman through whom we are restored is Mary. And, you know, I, I preached a sermon a while ago on this. I'm sure you can dig it up if you're really fascinated in this theology. But the one thing I, I mean to point out here is that you see then in this very prominent woman, um, Hannah, we saw this in Judges with Deborah too, like just really beautiful, fascinating thing to line up um, Eve as a sort of like negative and then Deborah as positive, Hannah as positive, and we could name others, but ultimately to Mary as positive. Each of these women sort of like in their own ways building and pointing to the victory that will be had for woman in the birth of the woman uh, giving birth to our Savior Jesus Christ. You can think in Judges of also not only Deborah, but um, Jael, who with a stake, um, you know, through the head of, uh, crushes the skull of Sisera, um, very much like Mary with, with Jesus crushing the, crushing the head of the devil. It's this beautiful, there's this beautiful picture. I think it's modern art, but it's beautiful um, in, in what it expresses. So you have, um, let me see if I can get this right from memory now. It's like looking at the foot of the cross where Jesus' feet are, and under his feet you have um, the, the serpent because of the promise in Genesis that the serpent will, you know, he will crush the serpent's head. And then you also have through his foot, you have the nail, and that nail's piercing the serpent's head, which is exactly J.L. and Sisera in that typology of the serpent's head being pierced. And then here too, um, in, in uh, Hannah, then proclaiming the victory that will come through the one who is true judge, true king, and true Messiah. So how fitting in this, boy, I'm long-winded on this point, but this point is, is, is simply this, how fitting that it is woman who first proclaims the Messiah, uh, by name, the first reference in the Old Testament to the anointed or to the Messiah. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So, okay, <laughs> you, can't, you can't end a prayer better than that. The Lord will judge. He will give strength to his king to exalt the power of his anointed. As we will see, all of this fulfilled only in David's son, yet David's Lord, and the eternal and everlasting king. Okay, there's the prayer. I promised another field trip. Let's do it just for the sake of being complete here. Um, open, uh, turn, turn to the New Testament to um, Luke, and let's just look at the Magnificat here. So <clears throat> that's Luke chapter 1. And of course, as you're turning there, I'll, I'll just give you a little of the background. You have Elizabeth um, visiting Mary. And Elizabeth, of course, is the last in the line of these barren women. 
and she is given miraculous birth to John the Baptist. And so all these barren women come and point to them, the virgin woman who is Mary, um, who conceives not by man, but by uh, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Lord. And then Mary sings. And so this is the climax, I mean, of all this theology of women, of all this theology of who's going to be the true judge, prophet, priest, and king. I mean, really, it all comes together. The whole symphony climaxes right here, and it's Mary who gets to sing it. And I, I love this. I mean, not only is this just, you have to understand how bizarre this is in the ancient world to have women being given such a prominent place, whether it's Hannah long before you know, I mean, a thousand years before Christ and Mary, or whether it's Mary here two thousand years before us, women are prominent all throughout the scriptures. And it has to do with this, the order of the fall being through a woman means that the order of restoration has to be through a woman, namely through her giving birth to the Son, our Savior Jesus. So um, Mary's song is the crescendo and the fulfillment of all of these themes in general and of uh, Hannah's song in specific. Luke 1, 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Ha! Look at that. Hannah says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary says, Now look for the great reversal. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So in other words, he has seen that Mary is humble. She's a virgin. She has nothing. She's a handmaiden. And he has now raised her up to be the vehicle and vessel through which God himself, the Son of God, will become incarnate and save the world. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So look at that, from, from humble estate to blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, or done great things to me, might be more literal. And holy is his name. Ha! Look at verse 2 in Hannah's prayer. There is none holy like you, the Lord, or there is none holy like the Lord. Holy is his name. Verse 50, in, back in Luke, um, <clears throat> And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So look at that. Those who fear him, he has mercy. Those who fear him not, judgment. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And of course we remember that that's, I mean, that's verse 3 of Hannah's prayer. Talk no more so very proudly, nor let arrogance come from your mouth. Mary sings, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. That's verse 4 in Hannah's prayer. The bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, Mary's song, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 5 of, of Hannah's prayer. Those who were uh, full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary's song, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And what's great about that, that offspring 
there's a, both a singular, singularity and a plurality there. If you understand it as capital O offspring, it's the, it's the seed, the seed promised to the woman who will crush the serpent's head. It is the offspring of whom Hannah uh, speaks when she ends her prayer. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. This is that king. And exalt the power of his anointed. This is his anointed. This is the offspring promised to Eve. This is uh, the judge, the prophet, the priest, the king, the Messiah, the son of Mary, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so that's a big deal. And, and now I hope you can see why I said earlier in the class that it would probably be the case that, I mean, certainly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, anything can happen. But it would seem very natural that at some point in time, Mary uh, learned probably by heart Hannah's prayer. And thus when it came time for, for you know, what Hannah and, and her miracle child pointed to to be fulfilled in Mary and her um, miracle child, that Mary would take upon her lips very similar themes. Okay, well, that's, um, that's chapter 2 of Samuel, uh, Hannah's prayer, verses 1 through 10. And then verse 11, we simply get some narrative movement. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So we transition. Again, lest we, lest we lose our place in the narrative, the miracle child's been given, uh, Hannah's gotten to enjoy him for a few years. Her, her womb's open, so she's going to have other children. In faithfulness to her vow, she's giving, the, she's giving Samuel to the Lord. And then Samuel is left there without his parents. I mean, and he's there with the Lord. And in this way, too, you can see then how he's like, how he points to Jesus in, in a number of ways. Of course, Jesus visits the temple, and re you remember Mary and Joseph leave him behind. And when they come back, I, you know, what did you what did you expect? Am I not to be in my father's house doing my father's will? And so, so Samuel, in in a sense, points to that as as his parents go back to Ramah, and he's left there in the temple of the Lord. Uh, Samuel is definitely a, a type and foreshadowing of Christ. Hmm. There was some other way, but I just lost it. So we've got this. Yeah, well, it'll come back to me. So we've got this uh, this transition. We've got Samuel there. I know we've got to learn more about um, Eli and his worthless sons. But seeing that we've got about two and a half minutes, and that this is a whole new movement in the narrative, let's uh, let's call it a day. Let's break there for the day. We'll find out this tragic business about Eli, Hophni, and Phineas. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. The Lord be with you.